All right, let's get started. Let's open up in a word of prayer, okay? Father, Lord, uh, we thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. Thank you for uh, giving us the grace uh, not only to believe, Lord, but also to continue to abide and to continue to trust in the, the claims of the gospel. We pray that uh, you would sanctify us now in your truth. Thy word is true. And so, Father, just bless our time again. I'm so blessed and encouraged by everybody that's here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are moving on now to the uh, doctrine of adoption, and we have been uh, mercilessly going through uh, the order salutis, and the order of salvation is something that is so important um, for our understanding of the gospel. Um, I know that today, in our evangelical climate, uh, it's probably difficult for the average Christian to articulate even a basic order of salvation. They'd be like the uh, disciples in Acts 19. We did not hear whether or not there was an order, <laughs> right? Most people don't even know there is an order to salvation, right? This is what the reformers called the order salutis. So uh, we come to uh, the doctrine of adoption now. So what I want to do today is I want to define the doctrine. I want to defend it from Scripture, you know, interact with, with the text, and then make some observations about the doctrine, and then talk about the privileges of, adopt, of adoption. Um, I think I've been averaging about 10 slides in Sunday school. So today I have about 20, 22 slides or something like that. So just, you know, fair warning, you know, we're probably not going to get through it. So let me just, uh, let me just give us a, a, a simple standard definition of the doctrine, okay? Adoption is the legal act of God whereby God places us into his family, giving us the status of sons and daughters. Uh, just realized my microphone wasn't on for ladies out there. Um, daughters of God and heirs of the promises of God through Jesus Christ. So that's just a very simple doctrine. But uh, notice that it says there that it's a legal act. And we've been in a lot of forensic language because we've been learning about the doctrine of justification. And justification obviously has everything to do with uh, forensic uh, terminology. Remember, justification is God justifying the sinner in the tribunal of God, the judgment court of God, if you would. God justifies us by remitting our sin and imputing to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the forensic language continues with the doctrine of, just, of adoption. So that now having been put right with God, now that we are righteous in the sight of God, now God can appropriately adopt us into his family. Isn't that remarkable? Um, let's go on. Anthony Hokema, which if you don't have this book, Saved by Grace by Anthony Hokema, I don't think I could recommend a more balanced, sound, uh, you know, they used to call Anthony Hokema the master teacher. He took over for Louis Burkhoff at Calvin Theological Seminary uh, after Burkhoff died, and Anthony Hokema has since also gone to be with the Lord. Uh, but his book I can't recommend highly enough. Matter of fact, he has a trilogy. There's three of them. There's uh, Created in God's Image, that's volume one. Volume two is Saved by Grace. Volume three is uh, The Bible and the Future. And so, um, uh, what I love about Anthony Hokema is that, like, kind of like R.C. Sproul, what makes R.C. Sproul such a gifted teacher is that he could take really difficult doctrine and make it very simple to understand for us, right? <laughs> that's what we need. And so that's what Hokema is like. Hokema 
you know, is so accessible. He, he, he writes at a level that we can all appreciate, and yet uh, he doesn't dumb anything down. It's still extremely sound and extremely good. But uh, this is the way that Hokema defines it. Our being placed in the status of sons and daughters of God and therefore becoming entitled to all the privileges that go with that status. Um, so let's jump into the, the texts, okay? Uh, look at uh, 1 John chapter 3, or here, uh, I can just read this to you. Um, maybe somebody can go to John chapter 1. How about that? Tony, you want to read John chapter 1, beginning in verse 12? Uh, and then we will look at this up on the screen. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, amazing things are being said there, right? This is so contrary to the conversation that culture is having today with being a child of God, right? Everyone's a child of God, right? Well, according to 1 John, not only is not everyone a child of God, but if you are a child of God, you ought to be ready to be misunderstood by the world, which means the world has no capacity to understand the Christian worldview. And here, um, I'm thinking of verses like... um, uh, verses like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 15 and 16, which say that, uh, this, uh, you, know, you know what verse 14 says, right? These things are spiritually understood, right? Uh, the things that he's been talking about. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. These things are spiritually understood, right? And then he goes on to say in verse 15 and 16 that uh, the, 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 the natural man cannot appraise the things of the Spirit. He has no ability to do it. But the, but the spiritual man, that's the believer, he understands or appraises all things. And so that's exactly kind of a parallel what's going on here in First John is that only the children of God only those who have been filled with the Spirit of God, that are spiritual people, have the capacity to understand the Father, understand the gospel, the word of God. Uh, and those who are not his children says, um, they do not know us. What, what, what does he mean by that? He, they do not know us. Well, I think he means something like that. Um, I just realized something horrific. I don't have my Bible. I left it on the... Um, I left it on the... On the uh, uh, the soundboard back there, if you can grab it for me, Scott. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> because at this point, I usually jump into that verse. Read uh, uh, John chapter 1 there, uh, Tony. This is chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the Son of God, even to them that believe on his name. Okay, and there, the word power, okay, is actually the Greek word is exousia, which means authority, right? This is what theologians say, that when a person is a child of God, they are given these privileges that we saw there in the the definition by Hokema, that we have certain privileges, and the principal privilege that we have as children of God is that now we have the right, Scripture uses that language, the authority, we have the legal right to eternal life. And that's what you see in Revelation, right? Revelation 22, what do you see? You see the people of God having the exousia. This is good because same theologian, John, John chapter 1, Revelation, Revelation 22, same author, 
right? And he uses the same language. We have the exousia, the authority to eat of the tree of life. Amazing. So what is he saying is that in eternity, we will be perpetually entitled to the life, the quality of life that we're experiencing in heaven, which is eternal life, right? It will be unending. We will have eternal right to eat of the tree of life, which is just a, a symbol of the sacerdotal tree of life, which means the tree that symbolizes and imparts spiritual life to us. Yeah. What does sacerdotal mean? Well, it just means like grace imparting. Sorry. Right. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> but that first John passage, another important passage, I mean, just to combat this idea of really what is universalism, right? This idea that everyone is a child of God, right? When we make, when we make a statement like that, not only is it not right, but you reduce the doctrine of adoption really to something meaningless. Because if we're all children of God de facto, right, then the doctrine of adoption is really meaningless. Why would scripture emphasize the necessity of adoption if we're already all children of God? Mm-hmm. Um, question. So what's yes, the ma'am? term? Is it we're all God's creation and those who are in Christ are God's children? Or people, like when people say we're all children of God, I mean, is that right in that sense? Or is that we're all God's creation, but only those who are, you know, adopted are children of God? Yeah. If you're created by God, he's your creator, but not necessarily your father. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, and, and that's good that you bring that up because that reminds me of Acts chapter 17, right? Acts chapter 17, uh, the Apostle Paul actually citing a uh, sort, of a, sort of a universal reality of that, right? Where it says, uh, Acts 17, let's begin in verse 28, kind of touching on what Tanya is talking about, which is a great point, okay? Because mm-hmm. how, how do we factor this in, right? So verse 28, for in him we live, we move, uh, and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also all his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone and image formed by art and thought of man. So there, there is a general sense in which uh, on that level, that as God's creation in that sense, he is our father. He is our father in the sense of he is creator. But, um, but the language of fatherhood in John and in other places is strictly salvific. So we have to make the distinction between the salvific fatherhood of God and then the sovereign fatherhood of God, which means he owns us. And in that sense, we are his offspring. We are his children by virtue of it being his creation. Right? Uh, what is... Um, the father from whom all the families of the earth are named, right? So all of mankind really owes their existence the way that uh, in this, this sort of parental familial kind of language, right? That uh, just like we are begotten by our mother, right? And our father, in the same way, the entire human race is begotten of God in that sense of being creatures of God. So um, important to make, keep that distinction clear. Um, the second thing then, the fatherhood of God is, a, is an issue that has been confused and is relevant to the discussion regarding adoption. Scripture teaches a dual aspect to the fatherhood of God, redemptive fatherhood, um, that's what we looked at, and then universal fatherhood. So if I just would have followed my slides, I would have answered your question. 
Let's look at the doctrine in more depth. Turn to First uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And you know, I started doing this because where's Kim? Remember, Kim? Yeah. You gave me the advice to do this, and you were right. Because uh, I was just throwing up every passage up here. But I'm a stickler for getting you to interact with the Bible. Yes, turning the page, looking at the Bible, <laughs> those kinds of things, whether you're swiping or whether you're turning an actual page, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me, uh, verse 5, because it's not just looking up at a screen and knowing, oh, okay, the pastor knows where it's at, right? But it's looking in your Bible and knowing, oh, this is where I find where I need to find, you know what I mean? I don't know about you guys, but I memorize a lot of scripture. Some of you think I like have a lot of scripture memorized. I really don't. What I do more than anything is I remember where it is on the page and kind of the gist of what it is. And I paraphrase it. And by the time you go and double check me, I've already moved on to something else. So you never catch me, you know, that I don't usually give like a word for word translation. Okay, but I try to give you the gist. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Well, let's begin in verse 3 because it's almost a crime to skip over verse 3, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So, I mean, that's just, wow, where do we end, right? Real tempted to preach Ephesians after Hebrews because of things just like that. You know, but right there, obviously, very clear, uh, adoption belongs in the order salutis. Why? Because it is all bound up in God's decree to save us, right? To work out this vast plan of salvation whereby he produces spiritual offspring, right? His people here, it's, it identifies us as what? Sons, according to what? His predestining love, right? It's sad and it's tragic. It's understandable, but that we wrestle with the concept of predestination. And I've had people wrestle with that. I mean, wrestle with it. I've wrestled it. Years I've wrestled with this doctrine. And still it's perplexing. It's not something you'll ever fully grasp and fully get over. But notice the way that the Apostle Paul is, is, is casting this language. In love he predestined us. So if we can't ever get to the point, aside from all of our philosophical struggles, if we can't ever get to the point where we can talk about the love of God uh, in congruence with the predestination of God, we are missing it. We're not seeing it in the right light, at least not in the light of the biblical authors, right? And the way that they thought about the predestining love of God. I mean, obviously, the way that Paul thinks about it is that no one deserves the predestining love of God, let alone an innumerable multitude of people that will be predestined by God in love for the purpose of adoption, to be adopted by him. And just really quickly, uh, uh, maybe a cross-reference, turn over to uh, uh, chapter 3 in Ephesians. Chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse uh, 8, right, just to show you it's kind of the same thing. Like, I, I guess we could say that Ephesians chapter 1 sort of introduces the ideas that will be expounded upon later in Ephesians. 
But in Ephesians 3, he talks about this, this, this I, I call it, what did I say? It was according to his, it says, uh, yeah, it says according to his kind intention, the kind intention of his will, right? And there I would say that's according to God's decree, his plan to save a people for himself in Christ, right? And that's what he talks about in chapter 3, verse 8. He, go, he begins there, to me, the very least of all the saints, y'all, unworthy, the apostle Paul felt, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, this is the message, the unfortunate fathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, how God is working all this out, how God is working out his mystery, which for ages, which is referring mainly to the Old Testament, has been hidden in God, meaning in his eternal counsel, right? Uh, and it says, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. There is the creation of a people right there. To who? To the rulers and the authorities. Who, the Romans, the Jews? No. In the heavenly places. This is a reference to uh, God demonstrating his sovereign redemption to the principalities and powers, the demonic and angelic beings that he has created, that they may see and understand the victory of God in Christ by creating people for his own glory and saving them. Any questions, Paul? If this doctrine is so clear to me, why is it so difficult for others? <laughs> well, I would say there's two reasons for that. Number one, because some people have just never been taught it clearly, right? And so they have all these misconceptions of it. And other people reject it. And so they have, because they have a philosophical problem with it, Right? They refuse to embrace it. And I know it's understandable. Some people think it's cruel. Yes. Yeah. What about all my people that died? Yeah. All of that. Yeah, that's right. So scripture says, you know, herein lies the severity and the kindness of God, right? I mean, God is kind, but the, it's also severe in the sense that God, uh, you know, is not just a God of love, right? He is also a God of justice and a God of wrath. So yes, God will demonstrate both his grace and his wrath. That's why it's so hard to talk to people about it, man. Maybe, huh. You know, in our church, Baptist church and stuff like that. You know, oh, that's cruel. Right. Everybody's involved. So more than anything, I mean, it should humble us. We have the choice. Will it embitter us or will it humble us into, into grateful obedience to God mm -hmm. that uh, he has decided to have mercy upon whom he has mercy? And um, so let's move on because I'll never, look at this. We've only done one verse. Oh, yikes. <laughs> Galatians chapter 4. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4, uh, beginning of verse 4. Galatians 4, 4. Galatians 4, 4, by the way, is a huge verse uh, just for understanding what God is doing in human history. Right? It says there, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, and we might receive the adoption as sons. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, this is where theologians get this language of adoption leads to the privileges of sonship, which is really being an heir. I know nobody likes to come up to the very front. You're okay. But, and, and that's exactly what we have here. Um, just marvelous, right? I mean, verse 4, the fullness of the time, uh, meaning that God, at the very exact moment in time, in history, in time and space, sent his son at the appropriate time, right? After the visions of Daniel were fulfilled. And the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Medo-Persians all rose and fell. And the Romans rose to power. And the Pax Romana was enforced, which meant safe travel for the missionaries around the, glo- around the known world at that time. That just kind of gives you a glimpse at why this time, right? And when Hellenistic Greek, or when Hellenism would introduce Greek to the known world, and the Bible would be written, the New, New Testament and the Gospel would be written in Greek to go to the known world, right? It wasn't written in, ba- in the Babylonian, you know, uh, uh, language. It wasn't written in the language of the Medo-Persians. It was written in Greek so that it can have the most far-reaching, far-stretching influence in the Roman world so that in a matter, my friends, of about 35 years, the Apostle Paul literally evangelized the entire Roman Empire through the Greek language. So that's just one aspect of why in the fullness of the times, right? So when things were ripe, God sent forth his son. Amazing. Simply amazing. And he is born of a woman, stressing his humanity. He is the son of God, stressing his divinity. Born of a woman, stressing his condescension and his humanity. And he was born under the law, stressing the fact that he was there to fulfill the law, to fulfill all righteousness. And having been born under the law, this one that was born under the weight of the law became a curse for us. Why? so that the fulfillment of the law would be fulfilled in us who believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, so all of this is, in, is impregnant with meaning. Um, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Uh, yeah, because sonship um, is the way that people would talk about adoption. They would just use the word sonship to refer to adoption. Matter of fact, the word adoption, that's exactly the literal translation of it, sonship. It's the way it's translated. So, um, so many things. Uh, Notice also that the Spirit confirms what the Father has done, right? Uh, God sent forth the Spirit of what? Notice how it's called, too. The Spirit of His Son. So, So the Father sent forth the Spirit, and what is the Spirit, what is his title here? The Spirit of the Son. Amazing. Blasphemous, if this is not Trinity. Because up to this point, right, up, up, up to the revelation of the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right, the Spirit is always the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, right, the Spirit of Yahweh. But now he's being called the Spirit of the Son, 
That's incredible, right? Any questions, comments, statements on that? Yes, sir. In verse 6, is the order of the language, because you are sons, you sent forth the Spirit, is that indicative of like a foreknowledge or predestining kind of, it says, because you are sons, he sent forth the Spirit. Um, he didn't send forth the Spirit because we are sons. So like, like kind of that, uh, we talk about foreknowledge, he decreed to have a relationship with us, that um, knowing that we, would, we were going to be adopted as his sons, he sent forth the Spirit because of that foreknowledge. Is that... I mean, I don't. I wouldn't say verse six. That's what that is meaning there. I would just say that as a result of adoption, right? What happens next is that God can appropriately give us His Spirit, right? The Spirit of His Son, so that the Spirit. And the reason why is because, uh, remarkably, in Scripture, adoption and the work of the Spirit is put together. You know, uh, not just here, but where else? Where else is the Spirit and the doctrine of adoption put together? Romans 8, right? Romans 8 is a parallel passage to Galatians. That's why they call Galatians a mini-Romans, right? It's almost like you should read Galatians first before you go into a headlong study of Romans because Galatians sort of just sums it all up for you real quick, five chapters, bam, or wait, six. Thankfully, there's six chapters, (laughs) right? So notice the Spirit... It gives expression to the status that we have. The Spirit is crying in our hearts, Abba, Father, enables us. It, um, uh, he sent forth into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, that's an interesting expression. I need to do a little bit more work on this, but the, 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 the word there, crying, which I think is a participle. I don't know. Has anybody got a Greek? You got a Greek text? No? No? Okay. Uh, I didn't, shame on me, I'm the one that should have brought it. But, uh, but it's, it seems to imply that the Spirit is the one crying, Abba, Father. So in other words, the Spirit in us crying, Abba, Father. What is he saying? The Spirit is confirming our new status as children of God. That's the, that's the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts. That's what he came to do as he resides within us. He confirms that we are the child of God. Of God. Isn't that remarkable? So Romans 8. No wonder you were pointing up here, Chris. It's up on the screen. So, yes, sir. Well, no, I was just going to say that um, the other night I was talking to my friend Liz, and she was, she was talking about how she heard in a sermon that, um, you know, if we're sealed with the Spirit on, on that day, which is a, which is a deposit. Arabon. And which is a um, guarantee. You know, just like how with an engagement, you get the, the ring yeah. before the ring, which is like the deposit before the actuality, right? And then um, she, she was talking about how the Lord can't reject his own spirit. So when we when we die, we, we can't be rejected if we're sealed with the spirit because he can't reject himself. Mm. So he won't deny his own spirit that's in us. Does that make sense? I, I don't know, that just, it just was such a, um, I don't know, just so assuring, mm. such, a, such a, um, a confidence that we have. Mm. He can't deny himself, we, he, he can't turn us away. Mm-hmm. If we're sealed with his spirit on that day when we die, it's a guarantee that we will be consummated, we will be caught up with him, we will be one with him. He can't deny himself. Well, 
It reminds me of what James says in James chapter 4, kind of a debated passage as far as the syntax goes. In other words, the arrangement of the words, what refers to what. But that just reminds me of James chapter 4 where it says in, um, in uh, verse 5, do you not know the scripture speaks to no purpose, that it does not speak to no purpose. He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. So maybe confirmation, my dear, to what you're talking about there. Uh, okay, let's move on um, to some observations. Observations from the doctrine uh, of adoption. Well, number one, obviously, it is an analogy that God has given us. He is the one that imparted to us uh, this analogy of, of, of a divine uh, relationship with God the Father as sons. 1 John 2, 9, verses uh, ver- uh, 2, 9 through 11. Somebody want to read that for us? Who's there? Are you there? Tanya, are you there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, can you read that? Can you read that? And then someone over here, can I get an amen? Okay, Brother Paul, uh, chapter 4, do the next one, verses 20 and 21. Okay, go ahead, Tanya, if you're there. All right. Um, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Mm. Very, very powerful, is it not? Mm-hmm. That the doctrine of adoption is an analogy to our relationship with not only one, with each other, but with God. So it's a reflection. How we treat each other as brethren, the family of God, has a direct correlation to whether or not we're in the family of God, whether God is our father. The real test. I mean, it makes fellowship really serious, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not this sloppy agape, you know, <laughs> that some people have, right? Uh, the, the fellowship of the saints is a serious issue. Loving one another is serious business because it's a reflection of whether or not we're in the family of God and whether or not God is our Father, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I remember I passed out a track to a gentleman in the parking lot, and I was with a friend. And this guy got so offended that I gave him a gospel track. And he got like almost violently offended at me. And he said, what, you don't think I'm a child of God? And he started getting kind of, you know, getting closer and closer, right? And the friend I was with, you know, kind of spoke up and said, he who doesn't love the brethren is not of God. You know, and it just kind of, you know, kind of stopped him dead in his tracks. Like, wow, that's true. <laughs> How can you be so angry at you're calling yourself a Christian? I mean, and that would make us brethren, right? And yet, here we are, and uh, you're ready to go to fisticuffs over a track. <laughs> Who's got the, the next one? Paul? 420. Yes, sir. 4, verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, there it is. and hates his brother, he is a liar. But he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. <sighs> yeah, uh, uh, I remember preaching through First uh, John, which seems like many years ago now, but uh, I remember coming to this and thinking, you know what, John is the author of black and white. <laughs> John would be the most politically incorrect person, right? Because he doesn't mince any words, right? Love of the world, you're not of God. I mean, just bam. There's no 
For him, he saw everything as just this duality. You know, you're either in the light or in the dark, period. You know, no compromise whatsoever. And I think it's, it's amazing here because look at what he's saying here. You cannot claim to have an invisible spiritual, which is the more, which is the more uh, uh, a spiritual way of expressing yourself, right? That you claim to have this unseen spiritual connection with God, right? But that is falsified if you cannot, on a visible plane, right, have love for your brethren. So the more spiritual claim is negated by the seemingly more practical, shallow claim, right? You came to, you know God, but do you love the brother who's standing right in front of you? Or the one that doesn't go to church. Or the one that doesn't, explain that. Well, I mean, you have people that claim to be believers, but they don't go to church. Oh, well, I mean, there's an entire, we can go on a tirade, yeah, like, you know, of well, ways. How do you love the brethren ways. if you're not yeah. in church? Yeah. Well, perfect point. If you really love the brethren, then you would be in church. You'd be encouraging, fulfilling the ministry of one another. All of that. All of that. You know what I mean? You're not, you're not going to fail to assemble with one another, as it says in Hebrews chapter 5, or chapter 10, verse 25. Yes, ma'am. Mm. Like, not married, don't have children, don't have any family. But you know what they said? They said it's the church that's been, been holding them together. But that's their, that's their family. And that they, they don't know where they would be if it wasn't for the church. And that's I, that's God's design, you know? Mm. And I, I feel that same way. It's not like I have a lot of family, but the church is my flesh. That is mine. Yeah, amen. Is this AC not working? Or is it just, <laughs> is it just not popping on? Oh, it's just um, Psalm 133, verse 1, you see that there on the, board, on the uh, screen? Uh, how beautiful it is for the brethren to dwell in unity, right? How beautiful. In other words, how right, right? But what, a, what a proper, adequate reflection of having come into the family of God. What did Jesus say in John, uh, John uh, 13, 35? By this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There is no greater testament to that. That you love one another. So, I mean, we could just go on and on. But, um, let's, let's go on here. Let's go on. Now, uh, the universal family of God. The universal family of God, which means that upon becoming a child of God, you have been put into the universal child of, uh, family of God, which, which means the family of God of all ages. The family of God, not just dealing with a, a certain denomination or culture or background or race or generation, but we're united to the family of God, which is comprised of saints of all generations, of all ages, if you would, into one common faith, Jude 3. So adoption assures, or uh, really it ushers us into a great cross-cultural, interracial, multi-generational family of God. So, for example, Galatians 3 9. Who turned there? Yes, ma'am, you want to read that for us? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, and if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Yes. Uh, that's, that's right. That's right. 
and verse 28, I should have started, started you there. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then it says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Heirs according to promise. You're Abraham's descendants. I mean, you can't be in a bigger family, but you say, well, my family goes back to Abraham. You know, all these people get on these ancestry uh, websites now, and they try to, right, for whatever reason, chase down their lineage and who was in my family line and all of that. We go all the way back to Abraham, baby. We're going back to the patriarch. You know what I mean? We, the family of God is much deeper. Spirit is thicker than blood. Spirit is thicker than blood. And, and um, uh, we know that. And, 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 and I want us to turn now to Matthew 12. Right? Uh, because I want us all um, to have this, this, this staunch commitment to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse... Or is that Luke 12? <laughs> Wait a second. I, I think I got this wrong. Well, somebody turn to John 19.26. I want you to read that. But um, oh, that's a fail because that's not the right cross-reference. Oh, wait, yeah, yes it is. I'm sorry. I'm reading 13, duh. John chapter 12. He's given the new Christian ethic. This is the new ethic by which we live our lives now. He changed everything. I mean, Jesus changed everything. He changed the world. He changed the orientation of religion. The identity of the people of God has been forever altered. Okay? And it's hard for us to really grasp this, you guys. But you got to think of yourself as a first century Jew with millennia, millennia of racial hostility behind you. Okay, We're not just talking about 500 years of racial tensions. We're talking about millennia of thinking about yourself as the chosen race, the Jewish people, so that the entire world is broken up into two categories, Jew and Gentile. That's it, right? But Jesus changed all of that. As we saw in Galatians chapter 3, there's neither Jew, there's neither Gentile, any of that. Now it's who is of faith. And he says here, beginning in verse uh, 47, he says, uh, someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered, uh, the one, Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, so the inspired writer remembers to record that event that he stretched out his hand. And he identified them. And he said, he said Behold, my mother and my brothers. So he was pointing towards his disciples and saying, this is my mother, this is my brother, for whoever does the will of my father is in who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Isn't that remarkable? 
That's incredible to me. Yes, sir. Uh, could you repeat where you were? I think uh, Matthew were... twelve, verse forty-seven through fifty. Okay, you said John. Yeah, right here. No, I so someone had a, a John nineteen twenty-six. Somebody had yes, yeah, Scott. Thank you for remember that, Scott. When Jesus then saw his mother and a disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, "Woman, hold I mean, think about that. I mean, this is as this is as emphatic as Jesus can make the spiritual family of God. His own mother, he tells him, he, t- he tells her, look at this man, this is now your son. Behold mother, your son, behold son, your, your mother. This is, this is how we ought to look at one another, right? And, and let's just admit it, right? This is not easy for us, right? That church is over there, you know, I associate with those people over there. <laughs> but in my little life that I have, you know, from Monday to Saturday, you know what I mean? I mean, this is how many evangelicals live their lives. I do my thing Monday through Saturday, and then I give God Sunday, and I interact with those people, right? And then I go back to who I really am on Monday, right? It ought not be. That's why it says in the book of Acts, they can, for every day they continued from house to house breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. That's authentic Christianity, right? Where, where, where church doesn't end on Sunday, right? Where the family of God knows no boundaries, mm-hmm. right? Where we can come over to each other's house any day of the week. Just make sure and call first, okay? <laughs> Give my wife some time to clean up the house, okay? And, and, and we, we welcome each other with open arms, right? That's right. Did I hit a nerve? Sorry. <laughs> Any questions, comments, statements on that? Experiences? Anybody want to speak to that? No? Why do my some manuscripts skip? 47 is out. What's that? On that Matthew 47. 47 is They leave out verse? 46. Oh. 47. Yep. I'm not sure. Uh, that's another class. Textual criticism. Uh, and I don't know the manuscripts. I should have brought my Greek, my Greek text. I could have told you something there. But Jonathan? Just speaking to the idea of us being, of all of us being in the family of God in the universal sense. Um, you know, I, throughout my work week at Chick-fil-A, we can get every, every kind of people but every once in a while someone comes in and like they'll hand a track to somebody and I just start talking and it's like an instant, I'm your brother yeah. uh, feeling. Yeah. And it's just, there's nothing like it. And then going from that to you know, having you know, friends and family from the church over as best we can, it's, it's always a, a blessing. I definitely relate to it. Yeah, one of the things I appreciated so much about the Gospel Coalition Conference, you know, 6,000 people are there, you know. And brethren from every walk of life, you know what I mean? <laughs> Evangelically speaking, you got Presbyterians, you got Baptists, you got Charismatics, you got Cessationists, you got all mills, pre mills, post mills, you got every mill you can think about, right? You got people from all sorts of theological persuasions, and yet we had an amazing unity across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, amazing. I had Joseph Urban there with me, and so half of the time we're fellowshipping with like uh, missionaries in Mexico and just, just a camaraderie, you know? I can go from a Presbyterian guy, you know, and uh, 
uh, and then turn and, and fellowship with a guy from Latin America, and we have the same exact bond. You know, it's just amazing. It's amazing. That's it, it was just like a little, a little foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. You know, the only difference is, is we're going to know who was right and who was wrong and everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the debate will be settled, baby. We won't even debate in heaven. You know why? Because we're going to know instantly. Like, okay, uh, all right, let's just fellowship. <laughs> You know, God's just going to let us know exactly, you know, what everything was. I am really interested to see, though, who's going to be right and wrong. <laughs> Actually, in the end, I don't think it will matter anyway. You're right. That's right. Because, you know, all... No pride. Yeah, that's right. There'll be no pride. We'll rejoice, you know, at whatever light the people that were wrong had. <laughs> I want to be standing next to MacArthur, Sproul, you know, Piper... And just waiting to see what the verdict is. Okay. <laughs> Man, this is going to be good. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson said, Adoption is greater mercy than Adam had in paradise. He was a son by creation, but here is a further sonship by adoption. Remarkable to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to leave it right there. Any questions, statements, comments, anything else? No, no more textual variants? Okay, let's go to worship.